we can reverse some of these alterations and changes either through the brain. So there's all these techniques and strategies that have become more and more popular from mindfulness-based stress reduction and now web-based CBT or hypnosis. So they influence the brain and that will change the the top-down modulation, which is negative. If you're chronically stressed, you have a, just from that, you get a leaky gut and you get a, a dysbiotic state. So you don't have the right microbes. You don't have enough of these microbes that produce anti-inflammatory substances. So we can, we can affect that. Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Dr. Emron Mayer. Dr. Mayer is a gastroenterologist, neuroscientist, and distinguished research professor in the Department of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. The executive director of the G. Oppenheim Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience at UCLA and founding director of the Goodman Luskin Microbiome Center at UCLA. He is one of the pioneers and leading researchers in the biodirectional communication within the brain gut microbiome system and wide ranging applications in intestinal and brain disorders. He has published 410 scientific papers, co edited three books published the best-selling The Mind-Gut Connection book in 2016 and The Gut-Immune Connection book in June 2021. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2016 David McLean Award from the American Psychosomatic Society and the 2017 Ismar Boas Medal from the German Society of Gastroenterology and Metabolic Disease. In this episode, Dr. Mayer explains what the mind-gut connection is and how largely it plays a role in our overall health and happiness. We discuss the top two ways to support this communication pathway from the brain down through stress management and the gut up through nutrition. Dr. Mayer, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on. I shared with you that I have been trying to get you on as a guest for quite some time now. Um, so this is really special for me to get to have an hour with you and pick your brain, which all about the brain and gut health. Um, but I'm really excited. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Kate, for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to uh, to reach your audience with, you know, the kinds of things that I've been thinking about and promoting. Well, that's what I'd love for you to just start off with telling our listeners a little bit more about your journey and how you ended up within your career finding a passion for the mind-gut connection and what led you to it. Yeah, so it's a pretty unusual career path, but in retrospect, it makes sense. Or I've been able to sort of, you know, put them all together in a in a logical sequence. So I grew up in a in a family, in a family business that was primarily concerned with food and happiness. So they made chocolates and um uh, you know, it was a what's what's called a confiserie in in uh, in Europe, in a small town, several generations. Um, my dad was primarily concerned about the the highest quality and uh, you know the greatest enjoyment that people could have, and and it was always joyful things. It was Christmas, Easter, the weddings. You know, were were these foods, and and obviously growing up in that household, 
um, it was combined with being exposed to all these, what we now consider unhealthy foods, you know, full of sugar and, uh, uh, flour and, 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 and carbs. So probably not a coincidence that I had a big struggle, um, deciding not to take over that family business. I actually, you know, got my initial training there, um, on the side to, to going to school. Then <clears throat> an agonizing decision to go into medical school. It helped me that I had the grades and everybody said, you got to go to medical school. So it was not, not really a decision for my heart. It was so based on, on these grades. And then in medical school, I mean, the main thing I was interested in was, has always been somewhat the role of the brain in overall health. Um, and I played with the idea of going into psychiatry, but then was kind of turned off by the way psychiatry was practiced at the time several decades ago. Um, and um, I also, you know, had the opportunity during, before, no, actually the first year of medical school, participated on a, on several film expeditions to um, indigenous people around the world, including the Yanomami on the Orinoco River, which in retrospect became a very interesting topic in my work and research because people have analyzed their gut microbiome and found that they have the most diverse, um, you know, gut microbiome of anybody in, in the world. At least they had it at the time. Just sad things have happened to these people with, you know, old miners uh, destroying their habitat and all these things. But then um, in medical school, I did my thesis on brain-heart interactions, so fairly elaborate four-year time I spent in the lab, and and then did a clinical rotation in gastroenterology, and that convinced me that I just found gastroenterology more interesting clinically than cardiology. Again, at the time, you know, everything you have to sort of backdate, like almost 40 years. Um, and um, yeah, and then within gastroenterology, uh, you know, the main or the only disease that at the time people discussed potentially with the brain having a role in it was irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. So then I did several years of research on looking at the brain, looking at the gut, looking at symptoms, um, probably several hundred papers on this. I, I think our group was probably the one that, that, that really changed the paradigm. Then, um, a couple of years ago, finally, the, the professional organizations decided to call IBS a disorder of, um, brain gut, uh, interactions or altered brain gut interaction. It took 40 years before, after we had first, you know, written papers on it and yeah and then one more thing happened so about 10 years ago when the first studies came out on the effect of or the, the relationship of the microbiome on brain and behavior um i sort of incorporated initially reluctantly because i i didn't quite didn't quite believe it but we incorporated this then into our research and um yeah and then it my initial focus just on IBS broadened significantly to all brain gut disorders, including autism spectrum, uh, uh, early cognitive decline, Parkinson's, depression. And, 
you know, we're lucky to get funding in all these areas and just recently launched uh, the UCLA um, uh, Goodman Luskin Microbiome Center. This was kind of the, the end product of all this work in the last 10 years. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's been a very exciting journey, you know, from making, <clears throat> making cookies and, um, <clears throat> in a small family business to, to, to actually, you know, taking the leadership with this microbiome center. And, um, I, I think there's never been a more exciting time in, in medicine where you can reevaluate many traditional concepts based on a new paradigm, you know, so. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I feel like everything is being reevaluated, which it should, right? Like, it's almost like you have to do your check back. And then I'll, I think it's also because we're finding that when we reevaluate, there were a lot of missing pieces or it wasn't the whole story. Um, but no, that's such a fascinating story. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think where I want to start, because we talk about like, and I'm hoping that a lot of people now have heard like the mind-gut connection or the brain-gut connection, the you know gut-brain link, all of these different ways we can say it. But can you explain for our listeners what is the brain-gut connection and how how is it actually connected? So <clears throat> initially, when I talked to my patients at the beginning of my career, um, you know, as I said, many of whom had IBS and related similar diseases. It was obvious they always talked about the mind, the stress, anger, uh, emotions, and their gut symptoms. And this was at a time where <clears throat> there was a lot of bias against that idea. You know, the, my colleagues and the, the field at the time was totally focused on the gut. And <clears throat> so this kind of intrigued me, you know, if, if, Patients know it if you believe them and if you listen to them, then there's got to be something to it. And then there's in our language, you know, gut feelings and gut reactions. <clears throat> if you pay attention to that, there's not a day where this doesn't show up in the press that some prominent person made a decision, politicians, uh, professional athletes, you know, made a decision based on their gut feelings. Um, and then, um, <clears throat> I started initially looking, focusing on the gut and cells in the gut, you know, which, which you do when you start an academic career. You don't, you want to focus it as basic as possible to get funding. And then at some point I just said, this doesn't make sense. What I'm doing in the lab has no relationship to what the patients talk about. And then this was about the time that, that brain imaging <clears throat> came about or was discovered as a new technique developed. And then, you know, we used, we used brain imaging to look at the brain correlates, both of um, emotions, but also what happens when you stimulate the gut and, you know, the brain reacts to it. And now, how does it work? Um, there's also a long story. So in evolution, um, animals evolved as floating tubes, digestive tubes, essentially, that... Um, you know, I had an opening on either end. They didn't really have a head. Um, they would live in the oceans uh, for billions of years. And um, um, these animals were, yeah, basically digestive tubes 
And they had a nervous system wrapped around, not, not as a brain, but wrapped around the, these tubes, which is almost identical to the, ner the enteric nervous system that we know today, which essentially all, all animals have an enteric nervous system, which are millions of nerve cells wrapped around your, your, your gut. So the gut has always, for hundreds of millions of years, a close connection to the nervous system more than any other organ. And um, yeah, then at some point in evolution, animals developed heads and a lot of the information from these nerve cells in the gut were transferred to these brains in, in the head. And so you had, um, you basically had the same language transferred from, um, from the gut to the brain and the gut got it because these floating tubes actually contain some microbes and some algae from the, from the oceans around them. And the microbes were the first ones that transferred these genes to the, the gut-based nervous system and then to the uh, uh, nervous system. So we, we, all these organs speak the same language from the gut to, the, to our brain, our thinking, and use the same neurotransmitters, many of the same neurotransmitters, so that's kind of basis. And then the, now we know there's several communication pathways. There is, um, there's, if you forget for a moment, the microbes. So there's, um, so gut is a very complicated organ. It has the biggest hormonal system or endocrine system that the satiety hormones um, contains serotonin, the, the highest amount in our body. It also contains that nervous system that I mentioned to you, 150 million neuros, uh, neurons, and um, it contains 70% of the immune system. It's all packaged in the gut, and all these systems interact with each other. So now you have pathways that are mediated by the immune system from the gut to the brain um, through nerve pathways, mainly the vagus nerve, um, and through these hormonal signals. <coughs> that are generated in specialized gut cells. Now you bring the microbes back in, and the microbes, with their language, can interact with all these cells I mentioned to you. So they can talk to the immune cells, they can talk to the hormonal cells, to the nerve cells. Um, so now you have a, a communication system that um, that was, you know, functions independently of, of the microbes, um, neuronal, um, hormonal, and inflammatory, but the microbes play a big role in modulating that system. So um, now it's not a, a one-way communication system. It's a lot of information that goes from the brain to the gut, um, to these cells that I mentioned to you, but also to the microbes, so the brain can directly talk to the microbes and change their behavior and tell them, you know, what state the brain is in, um, stress, chronic stress, um, anger, uh, fear. Uh, and I often say, so just like our faces, um, reflect, you know, the, what's going on in terms of our brain, in terms of emotions, the gut reflects that just as well. So if you look at an angry face, the, the way these muscles in the face contract, the same thing happens at the gut. If you are angry, it will not just change your face, it will also change your, your gut. 
So now you have a bi-directional communication system. Brain talks to the gut and its microbes, and the gut and the microbes talk back to the brain. Um, it's and it's you know it's it's, it's not a linear pathway. It's not like um, so I I can't dis dislike the term brain gut axis because that implies it's just a one way thing. Um, it's a brain gut microbiome system that um, is probably the most complex, you know, homeostatic system in our bodies because it translates what we ingest with our food, um, what our brain perceives in terms of external influences. Um, the gut sees toxins and chemicals and medications. All this information is integrated at the gut level and then reverberates between the brain and the gut. So um, because of this complexity, I believe, you know, it just plays a role in, in many, possibly most of the chronic, the current chronic disease states that we have. You know, it, it, it probably does not play a role if you get, if, if you get angry for an hour and then it goes away, or it does not play a role when, um, yeah, what else should I say? If, if 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 you change your diet for a week and then go back, or if you fast for a week. But if any of these influences that converge on the gut and its microbes are chronic, then all this is transported to the brain dead information and will affect. So I think this is particularly true about things like Parkinson's, these neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, no, I I mean, I've never heard... I'm so glad, Dr. May, you shared the story of like, I've never really heard like the beginning of the evolution of the axis, which is so interesting. It's also like, it's a little bit mind blowing just to think that that's how it started, but it shows you also how strong that connection started off and then has built. And so I'm curious, like when we talk about these microbes and those being kind of the modulators of this, you know, communication pathway, which I love how you put as well, between the gut and the brain, what are some things we can do to improve the microbes in our gut to be more helpful modulators in that communication? Yeah, so the way I laid it out, you know, this bidirectional brain gut microbiome system is obviously the answer to this. <clears throat> that we, couldn't, we, we can't influence it. So, I mean, first of all, we got into trouble, you know, with our chronic diseases, but we can, it, we're not sort of left with, with this negative state of, uh, state of affairs. It's, we can reverse some of these uh, alterations and changes either through the brain. So there's all these, um, you know, techniques and strategies that have become more and more popular from mindfulness-based stress reduction and, um, you know, now web-based CBT or hypnosis. So they influence the brain and that will change the, the top-down modulation, which is negative. If you're, if you're chronically stressed, you have a, just from that, you get a leaky gut and you get a, a, a dysbiotic state. So you don't have the right microbes. You don't have enough of these, um, you know, microbes that produce anti-inflammatory substances, uh, so we can we can affect that. Most people that go into psychotherapy or shouldn't really 
call it psychotherapy because these are biological therapies. If you do cognitive behavioral therapy or um, gut-based hypnosis, we know what happens in the brain and what neurotransmitters change. And so, so we can do it top down, but we can also do it um, bottom up from our diet. And, you know, that's being given this name exposome, like whatever we interact with from our environment. It's, uh, I mean, environment is really the, the, the simpler term for that. And food has become obviously a main target um, for these studies. Um, and, you know, it's easy to see that um, the standard American diet still consumed by the majority of, of Americans um, is, is, is something that has had, this has had detrimental effects on, on the health of the microbial ecosystem and essentially a decreased diversity, a decreased abundance and richness, um, a decrease in the, the bacteria that produce um, these anti-inflammatory substances like short-chain fatty acids and butyrate. Um, so this we can change. We know exactly, you know, how to change it through diet. We're not, you know, um, I think there's some ways that we'll also be able to change it. But I don't want to get into that, that question because it's very complex. With probiotics, in addition to the diet, um, there's certainly you know, evidence now that very solid evidence from animal studies where you can show these things much easier that, you know, probiotic intake um, uh, decreases the leakiness, uh, increases the diversity, decreases inflammatory mediators. And there's some early studies that show this in humans as well. So um, how much we can conclude from those results um, you know, which in humans were really done with um, with naturally fermented foods, food products, not not with you know capsules that have ten or twenty um, microbial strains in it. So we don't we we don't know which combination, which strains are really necessary in which in which patient. Probably not every patient needs the same combination and the same amount. So that that's one thing, but we can influence or rebalance this, this system, uh, a, a modern compromised brain-gut microbiome system, I would say really through two main things, gut-directed, i.e. diet primarily, um, and brain-directed, um, you know, which are these techniques that we do know can decrease our responsiveness to stressful events. I mean, we all live in a stressful world, but we don't all respond in the same way. You know, some people haven't. Yeah enhanced stress responsiveness and so teaching people how to live with stress without you know letting stress harm them what would you say dr Mayer, are the top strategies you found like we said everyone's different right so even like some um stress reduction techniques can work for one person uh, you know and may work better for another etc but are there specific stress reduction techniques that you found um, with, you know, your patients or also just in the research that have been proven pretty well to be successful? 
Yeah, I would say, you know, so-called contemplative techniques, you know, which mindfulness um, or meditative techniques. Um, and, you know, they are becoming increasingly popular with apps where, you, where a lot of young people do this, like this, um, this app Headspace. You know, it's amazing how widespread that is now. And it's actually promoted in UCLA to the students. And um, so th this, this clearly, um, th this is, would be one of my first things. I mean, the easiest that I can teach patients in the clinic already is the uh, abdominal breathing techniques, you know, that you breathe through your belly and not through your chest. Because we, we know chest breathing is directly connected to the stress response within the brain. So if you're stressed out or angry, or um, then you, your body will switch automatically to that stress-related breathing um, or, or with negative emotions. So that, it's a very easy thing. Some people find that very easy, even in five, 10 minutes instructions with my nurse practitioner to, to acquire this. And the good thing is you can do it anywhere. You can do it in the car, driving to work. And so I do that myself. Um, so, so I've sort of tested, beta tested all these techniques myself. And yeah. the, two, the two that I've stuck with is, um, you know, 15 to 30 minutes of meditation each day. and um, and this abdominal breathing that I, I do before giving a talk or, you know, driving to work on busy freeway or whatever. So, um, And can yeah, you explain, Dr. Weir, how to, I feel like everyone has a little bit in a way of their own explanation of it, but can you explain how you would do abdominal breathing? Well, so hey, laying down, so you want to make sure it's not a situation where you're going to fall asleep after two minutes because then you're not going to do it. Um, so in the evening, it's a little bit risky that this happens. So you shouldn't do it just when you go to bed, uh, in the morning and waking up that, um, you know, you, you pay attention to your spontaneous breathing pattern and you will notice most likely that you breathe primarily moving your chest and then you tell yourself, take a deep breath in and hold it for a while and then breathe it out. Um, ideally, you breathe it in through your nose and you breathe it out through your half-open mouth. And what I do with this, um, I, I also, I mean, this has been sort of formed for a long time, do some kind of progressive muscle relaxation, which now comes automatically, that I feel my arms are getting heavy and my legs are getting heavy and warm. and um, so for me, switching to this abdominal breathing goes along with this muscular relaxation. And 10 minutes of that is, is an extremely pleasant experience. And you go into the day, you know, in, in a very different state. Um, there's, um, anyway, there's lots of videos online that I would recommend. Uh, I, I think we have one on our website as well. And uh, so this is the first thing that I would recommend to anybody. If, Nowadays, it depends where you live. You know, if you're in a place where mindfulness-based stress reduction courses are available live, groups are available live, like most universities, um, that's a good way to get started in a, in, in a group. But now there's also all these apps, you know, that you can use. Once you know the basics of it, 
you can use these these apps. The same with with cognitive behavioral therapy. It's an early stage of some of these apps, but um, you know. So we no longer have this problem. When I recommended this to patients who came from a small rural area in Northern California, obviously they don't have access to a therapist. You know, who who would be able to do this? And so now we can. Anybody in the country can do it. You know, so it's. Uh, this is and and this will increase in popularity. I'm I'm sure you know. So. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a big proponent of belly breathing, especially being pregnant right now. I've been doing a lot of belly breathing for, um, you know, hopefully some good labor support as well. But it does. It just it feels different when you breathe from your belly versus breathing from your chest, and you have that like release, which is it's almost like your stress is releasing or your response to stress is releasing. Um. Yeah, and just a couple of comments to that yeah. further. I mean, I, I, I don't want to make this sound too complicated for you listeners, but so what I do in sort of along the meditative practice, um, mm. when you exhale, you let all the thoughts that you have inside of you or worries, you, you visualize them leaving your brain and your body. So it's the exhaling, which is a little bit longer than the inhaling, is the time when you let go of everything, you know, the, the negative stuff. and. If you do that in addition to the breathing itself, it's it, it will have an an added benefit to it. Um, and also, so the reason that these techniques work is because <clears throat> so the vagus nerve, we know, you know, vagal nerve stimulation has been used as pain relief and depression treatment and also stress reduction. So we know that activation of the vagus nerve um, Kind of forces the brain into a relaxation response, and so what do you do with your abdominal breathing? You send signals through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve innervates the diaphragm. You send these signals into the brain, and now the brain is forced to switch from a, you know, sympathetic dominance that's associated with stress to a relaxed um, um, vagal dominance of your of your brain. So it's. I think once you get started with any of these techniques and you get success, um, it's kind of exciting to explore, you know, things that you can add on to this. And uh, I think everybody, all children in school should learn these techniques. You know, it's it's amazing that we don't do that. No, I agree. It's funny. I I have um, a one and a half year old and I try to tell him like if he's getting upset, like, all right, let's breathe in. And breathe out. And sometimes he looks at me like, what are you doing, mom? But I'm like, even just me saying it, hopefully it's instilling something that he can even take. Because I wish I had that. I mean, I don't think we ever talked about breathing techniques no, in no. school. or I mean, I probably didn't even hear about it till after college. Um, and only probably because I'm in the wellness space. I feel like most people don't hear about it. I'm curious too, you know, we talked about how we said stress management and then nutrition is kind of one of the other biggest pieces to helping our microbiome modulate this communication pathway. How can we eat in a way to support our gut health, which will obviously support our brain and then our overall health? What have you found in your research and the literature? If we could tell our listeners anything to change in their diet, how should they be eating? 
Yeah, let me take a second to just realize yep. my uh, laptop oh, wasn't yeah, plugged in. Yeah, let me just do this. Yeah, part. take, take okay. your time. No rush. Okay, back. Yeah. Um. So, anyway, the the advice is actually pretty easy. Even though you know when um, consumers look at the internet, they're totally confused. You know, there's so many different messages, and you have to do this and this, and if um. On our foods are all these labels, what it doesn't contain. There's more labels now, what it doesn't contain. Um, and um, so it's it's very difficult for the consumer really to um, to do something that they're convinced of makes sense and that, that is not contested. And so I would say that the simplest thing is a a largely, not exclusively, but a largely plant-based diet has all the ingredients um, that are optimal for our microbes. It's certainly the optimal food for them. And then we know if you feed the microbes with plant-based components, um, you feed them the fiber and you feed them the polyphenols, which they turn into health-promoting molecules, anti-inflammatory. So the fiber uh, metabolism into short-chain fatty acids, you know, creates all these... Uh, Sputerate molecules, which are anti-inflammatory at the gut level, um, but also when they get absorbed, they circulate through the body, get all the way to the to the brain, and inhibit um, any of the inflammatory substances. So, sticking to this diet and modifying it. So, if you have IBS, <clears throat> I mean, I know many dietitians now and physicians recommend the low FODMAP diet which I do not believe is a long-term solution. And what, what happens, first of all, it's too complicated. Um, secondly, it's not healthy. Uh, it will decrease symptoms of, of bloating. But there's a much, the, the two main ingredients in the low FODMAP diet are, is to eliminate lac, lactose and uh, some of the oligosaccharides. You can do this sticking with a normal diet, you know, and what I recommend patients start with this general Mediterranean style diet and then take out, if you notice that reproducibly a certain food item, such as garlic, uh, such as onions, um, gives you more symptoms, then I would eliminate it for a while and see what happens if it goes away, the symptoms, um, or partially reduce it because often you don't have to eliminate things, but just eat less. Um, it's the same with the milk. You know, a lot of people, I mean, almost all people, maybe with the exceptions of some Scandinavians and, uh, um, you know, people living on the, on, 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 in the Arctic, uh, don't have lactose. So most people don't have lactose after the first few years after infancy because you know milk is not considered by evolution as a nu nutrient that is made for, for adults you know it's it's for babies so they can digest the breast milk so most people lose that 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 enzyme and some lose it completely others partially if you lose it partially you can still consume some dairy products that are fermented you know in terms of cheese or yogurt or kefir, and um, so with this recommendation, start with the standard Mediterranean diet, then test for yourself what your 
hypersensitive to and reduce or eliminate those few items. And I'm sure it's in most people, it's not more than a handful of items that they would have to sort of take out or reduce in the amount. And then they don't have to worry about it. You know, they don't have to stick to a rigid diet like the low FODMAP diet. Um, and what's interesting, I mean, this kind of approach seems to be also working for other uh, disorders with poor gut health, like inflammatory bowel disease, you know, where um, un unless you have a, have a stricture and narrowing in your gut where you should not take a lot of, you know, seeds and nuts. Um, but like for ulcerative colitis, when you're in remission, you should s stay on that same dietary recommendations. It's almost like I would say for humans, it's kind of the default diet that fits best. It's default because it fits best for our microbial needs and the microbes produce almost everything out, out of this food that's required from, um, you know, micro, a variety of micronutrients, particularly the, the fiber molecules and these thousands of polyphenols, many of which we don't really know you know, what they do after they're broken down by the microbes, but most of them are not absorbed. So you can almost say the foods that are not absorbed are microbiome foods. And what has happened in the Western diet, in the standard diet, we've taken out all these non-absorbable food components, you know, so out of the brown rice became the white rice, the potatoes now no longer have any of the resistant starch in them. Um, so we've Bread, you know, has been completely turned upside down. If you, if you eat some of these breads in Europe, you know, they're packed with fiber um, um, and micronutrients. And here you have, as an extreme, the Wonder Bread, you know, which is, which is still a popular type of bread for sandwiches. And um, yeah, I would say it, this is the easiest advice. Um, stick, then add to this diet. Uh, several fermented food items, you know, which could be anything from sauerkraut to kimchi to um, kefir, so dairy, fermented dairy. Um, and there's, you know, quite a few others, depending on your taste preferences. If you add this, I mean, we, we do have the evidence now that in humans also, this will increase the diversity and decrease the inflammatory markers that can be detected in your in your blood. So the advice is very easy. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm actually surprised that there's still these raging debates, you know, I know. Uh, some vegetables are dangerous and uh, like the nightshades, you know, people have written New York Times bestsellers on this topic. Uh, it, it is amazing to me, you know, that this is so, and it's particularly a problem, I think, in the U.S. because there's no I, I mean, there's no food culture. So most culture, most countries in the world have a, a traditional food culture where generations have been eating the same food, you know, and probably the microbes have adopted or have adapted to this kind of diet. And, but the U.S. doesn't have that. So that there's a complete void, what's the base, what should be the baseline. And now, it's it's a fertile ground for all these promoters of all these different types of diets, and uh, which is sad, you know. And I don't know if this will really change with the 
you know, with the studies that are they're being published and certainly for me personally, it's one of my main missions to get this out to the general public, this information, how easy it is actually to do something for your gut health. Yeah, no, and even the misconception, like you were saying with low FODMAP, especially as a dietitian, like people don't realize either people that are finding it online themselves or there could be some medical professionals out there too. Like if you just go to a doctor and they put you on the diet and you don't have a follow-up for a long time, you're not meant to be off those foods forever. You're meant to bring them back in, like you said, and try them and keep them also at low levels or just eat less of them. So just like with how you were saying for people who stop drinking milk, they lose the lactase enzyme, so they can't digest lactose. And then later when they try milk, they have a sensitivity to it. And that's kind of why we never want to completely cut out certain foods. I'm curious, Dr. Mayer, your thought on, because I feel like this is pretty, I guess, widely communicated and also agreed upon. How important is the diversity of those plant-based foods you're eating, though? Because, like, right, we all are creatures of habit. We go to the grocery store. We tend to buy the same fruits and vegetables. Um, or we, you know, we have, even for someone who has a salad every day, they buy the same exact lettuce every time. How important is diversity in supporting our gut microbiome? Yeah, sort of, you know, there has been a study published from um, investigators at UCSD that showed that the more diverse uh, the plant supply is, the plant components are, the, 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 the more benefit you see for the diversity of the, uh, of the gut microbiome for this ecosystem. And it makes total sense. So different uh, vegetables and fruits have different kinds of fibers, different kinds of polyphenols. And some of them need specialist, specialist micro, microbes to break them down. So if you start eating this diverse food, the system will require the migration of, of microbes from the outside to colonize the system. They may already be in your gut, but at very low levels. <clears throat> and um, so it, it makes total sense from a scientific standpoint. We have these studies from a theoretical standpoint, from ecosystem research. Um, if you, <clears throat> uh, you know, the more... Um, the more ingredients you put in any ecosystem, the more diversity you get in, 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 in actors that have to deal with these new influences. And um, so I, I think it makes, it makes a lot of sense. It's a little bit more difficult, um, but it's also something that we've implemented in, you know, in our own family to have some salads that have at least 10 components um, of, of, of vegetables and sometimes fruits in it. And um, we also do the same thing, you know, in, 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 in the morning with, with a bowl that has all these different seeds and, um, and, and berries in it. So probably also a variety of at least 10 items. So we come up daily to about 20 items, different items a day. And, and it and it varies, you know. We we don't keep the same thing. And now I've not measured my microbiome, or my microbiota. I I couldn't tell you how I was before, and and after. 
But I certainly believe that from the time that I was, um, excuse me, um, you know, that I was a child growing up in this, in this confectionery store, um, to today, it, it's pretty drastically different, you know, and yeah, no, and one, I, yeah, it's, but it's interesting. I really like how you said even just your tips. Cause I even try to tell people it's like, or even when I'm thinking about like, you know, making a salad or something, it's a salad's a good vehicle to get in a variety of vegetables. Or even I tell people like, go to the frozen section and get the vegetable medley that has all different types of vegetables that we, we use like a few of them a lot where you can just throw them on the pan and it's easy. Yeah, yeah. But for anyone listening, that's like, okay, well, I think I just need to add more fruits and vegetables in first, start there and then build up on the diversity of your fruits and vegetables. Don't feel like you have to go from zero to adding in right like 20 items or but that's kind of how you can do it in steps is first just adding in more fruits and vegetables and getting used to having them and incorporating them in your meals and then expanding on that diversity to help with your microbiome um i'm curious dr Mary, is there have you found in your research any of the effects of getting outside or outdoors to support the gut microbiome and the yeah, brain community studies you know so there are studies about green spaces and the microbes floating coming down from trees uh, if you walk in the forest and I've, I've not followed closely and i don't know how how big a component that is compared to your diet um and um but certainly for 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 children Growing up outside and, you know, playing with the dirt and in the grass and things that a lot of parents won't let their, their, their tr- children do, particularly in big cities. So that's, um, I mean, the early exposure, like what one thing has contributed to this, um, you know, compromised um, microbial ecosystem is that so many people have moved from rural areas and small towns where there were much more exposure to these microbe-containing environments, to big cities, um, you know, apartments and high-risers, and and that's going to get worse with time. You know, if you look, so <clears throat> uh, so that's one thing: exposure outside, but also um, physical exercise. You know, moderate physical exercise. There are studies that have shown that that. Um, I mean, we don't know exactly how that comes about, but that it improves the diversity and 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 health of the the gut ecosystem, as opposed to intense exercise like you know ultramarathons or triathlons. That has definitely a negative effect on gut permeability and gut health and inflammation. And but if you do it on a regular basis, just like we would recommend for health in general, uh, it does seem to have a, a beneficial effect. Uh, yeah, and and for physical activity and being outside, the stress reduction benefits, which we talked about, kind of like that top down. Um, but I know it's it's more so emerging research. That's why I was curious. Um, but you do right, like you get the stress relief. But I was curious, just in terms of the microbiome, and it's different too. Like even if you are living in a rural community, 
unfortunately, our soil in the U.S. is so depleted these days. Um, and so a big part of that, too, is just our soil health and how that has changed. So I'm really happy we dove really into like the nutrition and stress reduction piece because I feel like those are things we can control for the most part. Um, it's tough for us to fully control like how much soil exposure we have outside and what that soil, the so- the health of that soil is. Um, but physical activity is another one that we can, you know, definitely be more mindful of. And I, I agree with you, trying to do more moderate exercise versus you know high intensity or the ultra marathons is definitely more conducive one for our stress reduction but also for our gut as well yeah and um so you mentioned something about um yeah so in terms of these healthy outdoors um skillies so my childhood besides you know working in this in in this in the pieces of my parents, I spent several summers on uh, farms of, of of relatives. And when I look at these pictures today, it's it's amazing. Everything seems like was ultimate exposure to to microbes, you know, from touching the animals, riding the horses, uh, cleaning out the, the the manure from the from this from the stables. You know, it was everything. The whole day was exposure, um, and yeah, that. I mean, at the time, nobody paid attention to this. That this may have any health benefit, and so that that has also disappeared. You know, for like for these relatives of mine, when I visited them a couple of years ago, everything is mechanized, um, sort of almost like sterile. You know, there's there's no longer this sort of being exposed to the to the dirt and all this. Um, and they all have developed uh, diseases that we know are related to to a compromised microbiome. They all have developed obesity and metabolic syndrome and hypertension. Uh, so, very not a coincidence how that exposure that they that they had all their lives uh, um, that, that which is no longer the case that this has a reflection in their in their health you know and yeah because our soil health is directly related to also the nutrients that are going in our food and there's numerous studies to show like you know the orange your grandparents ate is probably equivalent to eight oranges we have to eat now in terms of the same nutrition and a lot of that just goes back to the soil health and change and unfortunately right now we can't control that as much we can be advocates for better soil etc but um there are things we can control like trying to get in more diversity of our fruits and vegetables and trying to get more plants on our plate to really help support our microbiome and you've given our listeners dr mayor so many different strategies that they can choose from and start um so i really appreciate it and I would love we end every episode with a little rapid fire Q&A. So for our listeners to get to know you better. So first thing that pops in your mind, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? I, I would say something that I mentioned during our conversation is is this um, you know, combination of abdominal breathing with progressive muscle relaxation. 10 to 15 minutes of that um, twice a day in the morning and then in the evening uh, works wonders. You know, it's, uh, 
no matter how stressed you are, it, it, it will help. It does take some practice. You can't do it if you've never done it. You can't do it effectively tomorrow, but with practice, um, it's something that I would recommend to, to everybody. Love it. Uh, coffee or tea? Uh, both. So I'm a, I'm a dedicated coffee drinker in the morning, strong coffee, and I'm a green tea drink or herbal tea drinker in the afternoon. I love that. And that's a great combination too, health-wise. Um, okay, your favorite, and this is our final question, your favorite home-cooked meal? Oh, wow. This is, this is hard to say. Um, yeah, I would say it's probably wild-caught salmon with on a, on a bed of um, mixed vegetables. Yeah, I, you can never go wrong. It's so funny. I always say to people, I'm like, oh, what's your favorite meal? I'm like, honestly, like a piece of salmon, some sweet potatoes, and some greens. It's just like, it's, there's just something about it. It's, you know, it's so good. And like you said, getting in that mix of vegetables, um, going to support your microbiome too. Well, Dr. Mayer, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love for you to tell everyone where they can connect with you, um, learn more even about your microbiome center. But how can they just learn more from you about the mind-gut connection? Well, so there's several ways to do it. So, you know, people can buy, if they haven't read it already, can buy the Mind-Gut Connection book or the Gut-Immune Connection book, which is just now coming out in paperback in a few months with a new title, The Mind-Gut-Immune Connection. And um, they can go to my website. There's a lot of resources on the website. and on the website, they can also sign up for the newsletter, the Mind Gut Connection newsletter, which comes out weekly and, um, you know, provides a lot of information, including a regular podcast with opinion leaders in that space, ranging from healthy soil to meditation. Uh, so I, I would say it's, it's quite easy, you know, start out with the website and you find everything else there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I know I need to I need to listen to some of those podcast episodes because you have some great people on. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mayor. I really appreciate it. It's been such a great time getting to pick not only your brain about everything, but really to go back and hear the research um, and what people can do to support their gut and their brain health. So thank well, you so much. Thank you, Kate. It was a pleasure talking to you. Despite your cold, so hopefully you get over that quickly. <laughs> Thank you. This week's actionable step is to focus on supporting your gut-brain connection and implement one stress management habit and one nutrition habit recommended by Dr. Mayer. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.